Hey gang, I am especially excited about today's guest host podcast. Uh, so today we are bringing you a discussion about racial justice and the criminal justice system. And, you know, we've seen public attitudes change a lot over the last few months, and a lot of false narratives around crime and police reform have really managed to take hold. So our guest hosts have a ton of information that will absolutely set the record straight. Rial Johnson is a political consultant with PRISM Washington, and he's joined by Shade Smith. She's a former public defender currently in private practice here in King County. Uh, this is a conversation specifically geared toward those of us in Indivisible, so we are really glad that you are with us. And with that, I will hand things over to you, Rial. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Cox. Um, um, as, as you said, my name is Rael Johnson, um, a political consultant in, based in Seattle and now California as well. Um, uh, we were, I run PRISM West, which is a political consulting organization to help uh, progressive candidates uh, get in office, mostly focusing on, focusing on you know, people of color, increasing representation. In our pri increasing representation in government is one of our uh, primary goals and functions. So when I first started this company, my very first client uh, was actually a prosecutor, um, a cisgender white male named Darren Morris. And through Darren, I met um, our fellow uh, host here uh, with us today, Sade Smith, another uh, civil rights and defense attorney. Um, and Sade and I have been friends ever since because uh, you know, we kind of shared a lot of values in terms of the fight and reforming and overhauling and dismantling our justice system. And not reforming, not reforming. I know reforming. Abolishing. It's been, it's been, that word has been lost all meeting in these days. And, um, and Sade is always one of the go-to people I look for in guidance and just because of uh, the the mind that she has on this uh, in the system. And I'll just, instead of elaborating, I'll let her talk. Hi, my name is Shade Smith. I am a defense attorney in Seattle, Washington. I do practice in King County. I'm in private practice right now, but I was a public defender for seven years um, in Mount Vernon, Burlington for a couple years and then in King County. Um, my practice includes felony practice, misdemeanors. I've done a little bit of family law and some civil stuff, but mostly criminal defense. I'm, me and Shade and I are here to talk to you folks at Indivisible, mostly um, to help kind of, uh, I guess not like clear the air or cut through it in a way to to try and talk about essentially I guess one one word was summed up as a propaganda. Um, when you do trying to change the criminal justice system uh, anywhere in the country, you're always going to get resistance and sometimes it feels like it's you're taking two steps back. Um, last year in the George Floyd protest, we had a lot of activity, a lot of um, move, uh, huge movements. Uh, going in and, and looking at talking to activists now and being one myself, you look at it as like, and you, and you wonder like, what actually changed? What has actually um, done anything that uh, has happened? And the funny thing is like during those movements, you, when we did elections this year, talking to well-off people in rich, richer neighborhoods, even or anywhere really, um, you would think that the police have been defunded, the police aren't there, and crime is on a rampage. The way is, you know, it's, it's, there's crime waves everywhere when they have not been defunded. In fact, they've gotten more money than ever, um, as always. And and crime is not is not, is not on the rise like like they say it is. And but somehow you you know like that this narrative that we are facing has been spread. Why? It's not just this last year that's happened. It's been happening for the last few decades, <laughs> and also especially in counter to when Black Lives Matter first started back in 2014. Um, so, 
we're here to kind of talk about like what really where you really want to look at when you see any news or when you get your information about criminal justice and especially police. Um, and we're going to probably uh, you might be you might find a revelation. You might be shocked to know that um, cops tend to lie um, quite a bit. <laughs> um, in fact, almost all the time. And um, and the thing is, the the sad thing is like their narrative is taken or their statements are taken on you know on point and as as truth. And you have to fight to disprove it. So it's not innocent till proven guilty. It is always guilty to a proven innocent. And that was and that was illustrated in an article that came out today nationally on ProPublica about cover charges, which is a whole nother aspect. And I'll let Shade talk about about when you say someone gets arrested for resisting arrest. Well, they don't say what they're arrested for in the, in the in the original report. It was like they were resisting arrest for what they're arrested for. And a guy was arrested for filming cops and they attacked him and they arrested him. They knocked his his phone out, gave him a middle finger, and he gave the middle finger back, and then they arrested him and beat him up, broke his nose. Um, and now he's suing the cops because someone else filmed that filmed that as event. And this is a thing that happens all the time, all the time, over and over, that we are constantly fighting. And Sade has been on the front lines um, of this all the time. And I've, I've always respect, you know, been kind of in awe of what how she's been able to cut through that narrative, especially when people, as a as a public defender or so and, and defense attorney, um, been able to prove a lot of these cases wrong, especially when she started uh, the um, uh, Dismantle.us, uh, the protester representation project, um, and defended a lot of protesters that were being unfairly arrested and assaulted by police during the George Floyd protest last year. So um, I'll let Shade um, talk about, I guess, how you've come to do what you do and why you do it, um, and tell us about well, why we need more people like you, I guess. Well, as far as why um, or how I came to do it, um, my path to law school wasn't is not even worth talking about. It's not that interesting. Um, but I think what is interesting is when I started public defense, I wasn't a uh, really, really um, educated in the full scope and the harm that the criminal legal system does on communities. Um, that's something I learned really in practice, just seeing firsthand and having communications with clients and seeing how um, you know so much money is invested in destroying communities and no money is invested in building communities. And then we have this repetition of what people call crime. Um, and then that justifies continuing to invest in, um, continuing to invest in systems of harm instead of systems of building and development. So as a public defender, I had you know, misdemeanor practice, I had 400 cases a year. Um, and that was supposedly the max, but we oftentimes got more than that. And then in felony practice, 150 cases a year. So a lot of clients, a lot of families, and what I started to see was a pattern of clients being victimized at a young age or having um, been traumatized or lack of resources, and then coming into contact with the criminal legal system because their needs weren't met later on in life, and then this cycle of harm being done to them, and then their harm um, being used against their community to justify further incarceration. So. I guess that would be the reason why I am doing the work and continue to do the work. And the reason why I went into private practice to do it is just gave me more flexibility as far as um, time management and being able to invest in clients the way that I wanted to do that I wasn't able to do in public defense. With the protest campaign, uh, I think it's really interesting is the amount of resources that were put into um, arresting protesters. I have some videos to show, but the police response for a Black Lives Matter movement of, uh, 
movement for you know standing up for Black Lives was met with you know millions and millions of dollars of police resources and violence, none of which was actually invested in the community. Um, oftentimes, we got a ton. We there would be tons of arrests at different protests, and what was scary to see is you know the copy and pasting. I have some examples of copy and pasting of reports where officers would just mass arrest people, and what you have is people exercising their First Amendment rights, which is a pretty big deal, which is why it's in the First Amendment, um, petitioning or protesting the government and uh, you know, demanding change in action. And what the government's response was, was to quash that with violence. So, um, and I think that would just meet the basic definition of tyranny. That's what happens when you have a government power and they don't want to listen to what the community has to say, they respond with violence. And that's exactly what's happened in the United States. So, um, and this is a continuation of a movement against Black Lives. I mean, you could talk about movement for civil rights. You could talk about the Black Panther Party, COINTELPRO, all of the investment by the US government to um, demolish and demoralize any type of movement for Black liberation. Um, and there's there was actually a response. There was an article, a study done by the City University of New York that spoke specifically to this. Um, the uh, Department of Justice, they expanded federal jurisdiction for cases involving protesters. So cases that would normally go to the state level where people would be getting misdemeanors at most, sometimes state level things with shorter sentences, um, the feds were expanding jurisdiction to prosecute protesters and majority of them were black men and uh, the sentences were 80 plus percent longer than they would gotten would have gotten if they'd just been in state court. And so you see a targeted response um, by the US government to quell a protest movement or an uprising movement to address you know, the systemic issues that we keep seeing. Indivisible itself was founded in response you know, to Trump's election. Um, a lot of white America got to kind of see, got kind of a veil pulled back about how um, much racism was, racism was still embedded in our country. It kind of, you know, because Trump kind of brought that out. Um, so he, I don't think he didn't bring anything new. He just kind of, it was just kind of pulled the veil back a little bit. Um, the thing is, like, I think when you see not just so much racism, but what's like with liberals in general, uh, especially in, you can see in Seattle was their main goal got focused. They got focused on Trump and not realizing that the system was already there before Trump got elected. It's not like Trump changed all that much. It was just like, you know, the, the stuff, there was already laws and systems in place to enable stuff like Trump and protect his followers. And meanwhile, we being weaponized against, you know, liberation movements that we've, we've, we've had. And, um, and it's just, it's, it's almost frustrating to see where it's like, think, you know, like where, where the misguidance of, of what actually is bringing equal rights and civil rights uh, gets, gets turned when you see, and there's no, really no better illustration than you see in Seattle houses where you see a Black Lives Matter sign or in this house, these Black Lives Matter, love is love, all these things. And then right next to it, there's a don't rezone this property, <laughs> this house or recall Sawant. And it's like, you know, like they don't realize people are like, that's exactly, you know, those are actually, con you're, you're directly contradicting yourselves and you're really fighting against what you say you believe in. And um, just because you can say Black Lives Matter doesn't mean you're actually doing it. And so, and I guess my path and how I came to like kind of just be, to throw my hands up a lot at the system was, was um, like I worked, the very first campaign was for Obama's reelection in 2012. Um, Back in Ohio, where I actually, you know, in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I, I used to play before I played pro football uh, for the Bengals. So I went back to my, my original list. I've started two careers in Cincinnati. 
both football and both politics. And I've done campaigns in six different states now since then. Uh, knocked on doors, not every one of them. And <clears throat> eventually, like around 2016, um, I worked for the Alliance for Gun Responsibility, which is a great organization. Uh, but also, like, there's you realize when you're working in these organizations trying to do um, these, you think is progressive or liberal good causes, you realize um, some a lot of this stuff becomes um, placation. And we think we're doing a lot when it's like, when we're, we're actually just um, reinforcing um, white supremacy. And for example, and <clears throat> like when we do the gun violence prevention movements, and we talk about restricting access to guns or making laws harder on guns, um, you know, like making sure we, we enforce gun laws more. Those things never get enforced the way you think they are <laughs> in these movements. I think this, the cops are going to enforce these correctly. And and just for for context, think of it like this. I you know I got embedded with a lot of stats and and gun violence in my time there. Um, and the thing is, it's funny how black people are are arrested at three times the rate of white people for gun possession when we own guns at half the rate of white people. Ninety percent of black people own guns. Forty one percent of white people own guns. Um, yet we are in jail three <laughs> three times more. For, uh, for gun possession. So um, the thing is like, just picture in your head, and there's videos to prove this, when a white person walks around town with an assault rifle or open carry, but a black man walks around town open carry, how long do you think he's just gonna last before they get stopped by a cop? And how is that interaction going to go? And there's a couple of videos where a black man walks around with a white assault rifle and a dozen cops pull up, pull their guns out, have them on the ground. Another white man called runs around, walks around, um, walks around the gut with a you know assault rifle. One cop shows up, talks to him, says, "How are you doing?" Say, "Okay, you're you're good. Move on." Washington State is an open carry state, and I know damn well I can't open carry in the state. Um, I've had a gun. I've never owned a gun, and I've had a gun pulled on me three times in my life, and two of those times were cops. So, the double standard of enforcement. When I say the Second Amendment is a is a double, there's a double standard to it, and there's a double standard to the First Amendment because when uh, as James Baldwin <laughs> stated, um, you say, give me liberty or give me death. You know, who that comes from is going to make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. um, and we saw that with Kaepernick. We saw that with, you know, and we saw that with Martin Luther King, Fred Hampton, <laughs> and other civil rights leaders who were assassinated. And so, um, so this, this is uh, like, you know, when we, we want to, we want indivisible is a national movement mostly to engage with their federal um, representatives and senators. And so, and it's, I've been in a lot of these meetings and it's just, um, it's good to have a good relationship, but like, it's very frustrating to be in a, a lot of these things and saying like, and and just going there to, comp, you know, going there to talk about, you know, what we care about, but then end up compromising. And when I talk about compromising government, um, I want you to picture trying to open a door with more than one lock. So a lot of people have two locks in their door. You have a bolt lock and a knob lock. And you lock both of them up at night. And if you undo one, or you're trying to get in your house and you undo one lock, that door is still locked. You may feel like you made progress, but that door is still locked and where nothing's really happening. And that's kind of essentially in a nutshell how I felt trying to lobby in government. It was just opening one or two, one lock on a doors with, on doors with a bunch of locks on and feeling like it was progress and nothing was actually changing. And so 
you end up coming to the conclusion like, how do you figure out how to just either find more keys or do you just build up enough strength in the community to just kick the door down? And 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 maybe <laughs> I guess a shoddy one, you know, right hand of shoddy, you'll probably talk about how we're burning all of it because I think that's you know because that's sometimes the that's when you when you're trying to do this change the right way the right way lobbying trying to change laws it just feels like it's, you're just getting placated and you're doing a whole lot of work for nothing. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. <clears throat> I would definitely agree with. Um... I think even in the criminal system, all the processes do is just extract a lot of energy from you and communities, period. Um, and what happens is every process, there's a bunch of steps and that's just more violence on community and none of the benefits. So I'm gonna share my screen um, and just to highlight some of the points that I previously discussed. So what we have here is um, the expense of the criminal legal system, and it's about $182 billion a year. Um, and I think that's a gross underestimate, but um, that's the figure that we have. So free college for all is $47 billion a year. We have um, a huge economic crisis right now. We have a student loan crisis. And so that money could be invested in communities and yet we're investing in the criminal legal system. Um, one of the things that I realized when I was in court, when I was practicing at Seattle Municipal Court, and I still do sometimes, um, as a public defender, we got a new contract. Um, we ended up being, becoming state employees or county employees. And so our pay became on parity with the state and the prosecutors in the city. So I was making six figures as a public defender. Um, the prosecutor was making it around that much as well. The judge was making six figures. There was the bailiff and the clerk, and then there's the marshals. And then we have our clients who are being prosecuted for misdemeanors, you know, stealing sandwiches, whether it be clothes from Goodwill, um, petty assaults, all of that. And it was just really alarming to see how much money went in every single day to the criminal legal system, just making it operate and how much money was not going to community. They have the whole probation department um, and people needed housing and they needed uh, care. And we weren't giving that. Instead, we have this, you know, floor or this multi, I think it's 11 stories at the Seattle Municipal Court building on 5th and James. It's a huge, beautiful building. It's pretty much new. Um, millions and millions of dollars invested in that structure, which cages people and works as a carceral punishment tool, as opposed to just giving money to community. So important to notice that we do things differently in the US. Um, how we engage with the criminal legal system isn't normal. Um, and this is just the title of the article I was discussing previously about um, the feds expanding jurisdiction to uh, target the movement for Black Lives. And so this was in The Guardian. There's also articles in NPR, um, but there's a study by City University of New York and Movement for Black Lives that uncovered some pretty disturbing numbers in, in that regard. For example, um, from the article, 92.6% of the cases were equivalent to state charges. So they shouldn't even been in federal jurisdiction. Usually it's a, if it's a federal question or if it's, you know, somebody's crossing state lines, but again, people were getting picked up on federal charges for a uh, local jurisdiction that would usually be a municipal issue. The rest of the world does not do incarceration like the United States. Um, the rest of the world thinks that this is pretty obscene. Washington state has pretty comparable numbers to the rest of the nation. So there's a couple of things to, um, to address some myths. We have one, we, um, that incarceration is normal, it's not. We have 5% of the world's population, 25% of it's incarcerated or caged people. And the amount of money and resources that's invested in the criminal legal system. 
um, and policing as an occupation isn't dangerous. So this is to discuss the propaganda, which also addresses the really significantly bloated uh, police budgets. For example, Seattle is about $410 million a year. Um, almost half a billion dollars is spent on uh, policing in Seattle every single year, but policing is not dangerous. Loggers, uh, you know, blue collar workers are in more danger than police are, but they're walking around with military grade gear. And I'll jump in anytime you want to. I don't want to. My brother's a fisherman, by the way. Oh yeah. <laughs> so fishermen need more resources than police. Roofers, um, yeah, garbage folks, construction trade, all of that. Uh, my mom was a truck driver for a long time. And so that's a career that's more dangerous than policing. And yet, you know, there's not nearly the half a billion dollar investment. My dad, you know, my dad was a logger. My uncle was a roofer. I know the roofers are that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it makes sense that dangerous. Yeah. And it's also a way to think it's like, it's that dangerous or policing's just not that dangerous at all, right? Like these are jobs that people are pretty familiar with and police are just not in a situation where it justifies one, um, their activity, they respond with such violence. And they, and, they initiate a lot of this violence that happens. Yep, definitely. So this is just to discuss what crime is. Um, crime is a political designation. Uh, it's really who does it as opposed to what it is. For example, um, wage theft is much bigger than robbery, burglaries, takes up way more money um, and causes way more financial harm. And yet what happens when there's wage theft, right? There are people, our employees are rarely ever prosecuted, but people stealing for resources, they definitely are. And so this is what our jails and prisons are filled up with is people who are suffering. And this is just another diagram of the wage theft and civil asset forfeiture. And I don't know if you want me to discuss a little bit about what civil asset forfeiture is, but Please do, give it people, so people know. Okay, so uh, civil asset forfeiture is when, like for example, this I'm just using the Department of Justice, but it happens on the state level as well, where they can take a hold of your resources that they believe are associated with any type of quote unquote criminal activity. Mind you, this is before your conviction. So they seize all your assets. And as you can see from the graph on the right from 2001 to 2014, there's been a significant increase. And I believe that, inc that increase is still happening and consistent uh, all the way to 2021. So what you see is a bunch of resources, billions of dollars being taken uh, and seized by the government when you're presumed innocent. And a lot of times you won't get those resources back and they don't have to do much of a showing to seize your assets. And <clears throat> this graph demonstrates that, you know, Minimum wage violations, people stealing from people making minimum wage, so employers stealing from people making, it's $23.2 billion a year. Overtime violations, $8.8 .8 billion a year. Arrest break violations, $4 billion a year. Off-the-clock off violations, $3.2 billion a year. And then there's larceny, burglary, and auto theft, and all of those come at around 12,000 total, or 12, sorry, uh, $12 billion a year total. And so what we're seeing is this huge disparity. It, you know, whatever's over here does not even account for what's even taken from minimum wage violations. But most of our resources in the government are used to track down people for you know, what we consider crime. And robbery is included in this too. So all of this does not even come close, maybe about half of what the minimum wage violations are. And again, the people being taken from are the most vulnerable um, and our poorest community members. I'll give a, I guess a quick sample for, you know, for listeners. Um, like civil rights enforcement, like example is, they can like so anything that you have, like the cash you have on you, your car, um, you know, your bag, 
you know, your, your wallet, they can just take it because they think you're using that to commit a crime. And it's guilty till proven innocent on this. You don't, you know, they really just say, you know, like they, they can't, they can't, you can't get out on bail. You have to go through a whole procedure to file. You have to sue for your stuff back. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, as the stat I saw was like maybe 30% of people that actually get it back. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, one example I've heard, a guy was actually going to buy a tractor for his farm. Um, and, he, and he was buying it for cash. So he drove a few states over to get the tractor or whatever, long drive. Um, and, and he had like $2,000 cash or something, a couple thousand dollars cash. He got pulled over. The cop found the cash. He searched his car, found the cash, took his car, uh, took his cash, said, uh, you, because he assumed he was going to buy drugs. And that guy could not get his cash. His farm ended up shutting down because like, so this is a white, this was like a white man. And I always say, like, I mean, this is like, regardless of the race disparities, like, this is how much the government is stealing from people, mm -hmm. um, normal workers and, and corporations stealing from their, you know, for their wages, more than your local shoplifter would do, can, mm -hmm. can do, and you know, exponentially. And we don't do, put any resources into fighting this. But, but, but this is, uh, well, I'm not cutting in front of this with, um, you see this narrative where there's this great crime spree because they show one or two videos of someone shoplifting the store with no security and they think we need more police and police mm -hmm. are supposed to be like your local convenience store security guards. And, and, but meanwhile, they're taking stuff from us. The corporations that like the same corporations that are crying about shoplifting are taking more wages from their employees than any shoplifters than all shop shoplifters combined have. And their mm -hmm. stats are there to prove it. Yeah. It's, it's pretty extreme. And the lack of uh, media coverage to the disparity is also really telling. Um, media is not actually telling the story of the people most impacted. It's telling corporate uh, corporate lines to justify an expansion of the police state. So this is talking about, and Riel touched a little bit about on this, but um, policing and how it makes no sense as far as what its stated goals are. For example, if its stated goal was to keep drugs and guns off the streets, more white people would be first than anybody else, but that's not what's happening. So as you can see, it's just a continuation and it appears to be a continuation um, of what it has always been, and that's a way to regulate uh, marginalized communities. So this slide just kind of, there's a lot of numbers on it, but it, say, it says basically um, people of color are first more regularly than white people, and it just breaks down on what communities. And indigenous communities, which don't get discussed often, um, their numbers are extremely egregious as far as being violated by um, police just in everyday life. Um, so a white person is more likely to have a weapon 14 percentage points higher than native people, 8.6 percent higher than black people, uh, 4.6 points higher than Asian people of Asian descent and 4.3 points higher than uh, Latinx subjects. So what we see again and again is that white people are carrying more weapons, have more guns and uh, contraband but are not being stopped and frisked. And so what is the stated goal um, and what is the actual impact? And that was just in 2000, 2019, the study was done. I don't know if you want to discuss if you want to follow up on that a little bit or well it's um it's just it's just like you see this it's a double standard the second amendment right you're supposed to, you're supposed to be able to run or walk around with the gun one thing i think the left needs to be very wary of and and, and what you know what liberals need to be wary of but when we push this gun propaganda a lot be very careful about where you're going because when they if we were to just ban guns and outlaw guns and you know, right away who do you think is going to be the first one you know to get do you get enforced? Whose houses are you? Do you think are going to get raided? Exactly. And that's the thing is why I'm always, you know, it was it was scary when I was working in this in this space to know when it was like like it was. Um, you see, it's, it's a when it comes to guns, 
and in contraband. It's a crime issue in the black and brown communities. It's a health issue in the white communities. When, when there's a mass shooting or suicides and all it's always talked about, oh, we need to work on mental health. We need to, what can we do to prevent this? But when it's a, when there's a shooting in the black community, it's a crime issue. We need more police. We need more, if it's a, if, if it's a shooting in the Muslim community, first question is, is it terrorism? You know, it's like, you know, and if, and when it's, you know, in the, in the in Latino communities, it's, it's, you know, where, you know, are they bringing guns over across our border? It's like, no, the guns were made here. First of all, more guns. And, and so, um, and it's very, until we actually just stop the manufacturing guns, which I don't know if they're going to happen. That's, and that's a federal issue, which individuals should talk about. It's the manufacturing of guns and the regulation on the manufacturers um, and that lobby. That's, we're never going to be able to enforce it. It's just like when we try to do the war on drugs, um, it doesn't work until you, you know, because as long as they keep making them, they're going to, they're going to end up here. And so, so this is a, like I said, it's, it's just really, it was really frustrating to see this when I was like, you know, when, to, to think of it, and I just had to really just pose a question to a lot of people I was working with in the advocate, like advocacy space was, do you just think black people don't have mental health issues? Because you never bring it up in our community when there's a good, when there's a shooting. One kid could be bullied by other kids and he's shooting something, you know, if, he, if there's a shooting, like you never ask that question, was he bullied? Was he had, did he have mental health? Every time a white kid shoots somebody, that's the first thing we go to. Because you couldn't fathom that the people that the people that own the most guns could actually just be shooting people and even be violent. They have to have so it's they are able to isolate it as lone wolf or you know they're all isolated incidents when there's you know not a systemic issue. The thing is like we want that health approach taken to our black you know black and brown communities. Um, and I see that like you see that when a shooting happens in a white school, kids get days off. They get healing puppies and that. When this happens in a black neighborhood, black school. Uh, you know, primary, you know, POC, uh, POC school, they're back at school the next day. There's no, no, no mental health. There's no therapist. There's not, nothing. They're just, they're supposed to be the norm. So, all right, <laughs> before I rant further. No, and that's a big, um, that's a big point as far as what happened in the school response with their school shootings. Um, for example, there's like a $23 billion a year disparity between predominantly white schools and schools with black and brown children in it. And so if you think about how that adds up exponentially over time, um, that's a significant amount of resources that are going. And so what happens is we see the distinction in the result, right? Um, just like Raul was saying, in white schools, you get um, you know, treatment, follow-up care, and black and brown schools, you do not get that. So this slide is talking, and I know this is a, um, we're talking about more of a national thing, but I do think it's important to discuss the misrepresentation about Washington being progressive. Washington is not progressive. Um, our race disparity numbers are comparable to the South and if not worse than uh, places in Louisiana and Alabama. Um, in 2017, the imprisonment rate of black adults in Washington was 5.3 times higher than white adults. In 2014, one in 34 black men in Washington were in prison. Um, and we just made up, black men just made up, of, or black adults, sorry, were just 4% of the state's population in 2017 but 18% of the prison population. And so what we have is, you know, quote unquote, blue states and areas where people think that progress is happening. It's just a fallacy. And that goes again to loops into the propaganda. Um, and so I think it lulls people into a false sense of security and safety. Uh, that's just not what ha what's happening. Our resources, and especially um, comparatively, Washington, especially Seattle, King County, we invest more in policing than most of the other 
uh, states in the nation. So we have an extreme investment in a carceral state that is clearly very, very racist. And again, we're not committing crimes at a higher rate. So um, who is in prison? And I think people have this idea that prison is a place where you separate and keep people safe from violent offenders, right? Prison is over there and everybody else is over here in community. But what happens is, um, most of the people in prison have nothing to do with violent offenses. But even that misnomer of what violence is, is very racialized. So I've had clients who I will see the same activity and somebody will get charged with assault, the other person will get charged with disorderly conduct or won't get charged at all. And you can see that those numbers, uh, those cases line up very much on race lines. And so I don't like the distinction between violence and nonviolent because what that really does is uh, allow for racialized qualifications. But 54% of the people in prison are not there for violent offenses. 64% have mental health issues and 68% have substance abuse issues. And then there's the overlap, 80% um, with either substance abuse or mental health issues. And so what we're doing instead of resourcing communities and taking care of people is we're locking up our most vulnerable. And then in locking up our most vulnerable, we're destabilizing generations of communities, right? Like for example, real, you know, how would that impact your family if you were just gone for several years? Um, you know, I think about my brother who recently passed away, his absence is very significant. And so we're talking about removing people who are very material to our communities uh, for no reason, and then separating them and then hoping, isolating them from community and then hoping that when we throw them back several years later that everything's gonna be okay. I like to chime in because we have about five minutes left. Um, oh, five minutes, okay. And it's what I'm seeing now in the narrative you're seeing from media and, and police is very similar. It's deja vu. I'm 43 years old. I was 16 years old when Hillary Clinton and all the Democrats were, they used a super predator term. Like she was talking about me and my friends. And, and I saw the results of that and how so many of us just started getting locked up. You had to be on your toes all the times around cops. We have more, I saw more cops more of the police. And I see a lot of my friends just like just carved out five to 10 years for the same stuff that I saw people in college do. I've never seen, the most felonies I've ever seen in my life was Stanford University at, at parties. I saw felony after felony after felony. I saw, I saw all kinds of drugs getting used. I saw all kinds of sexual assault happening, but they were not kicking down those doors. They kicked down my friend's doors. They kicked, they showed up at my house. They were pulling me over and my friends, you know, in our, in our cars. And, and here I am, like you had to be almost perfect. I was still subject to it. And I was like, I was an all American homecoming king, you know, A minus B plus to it. <laughs> like, I mean, I got like, not, you know, like, and I, you, you, you try to be everything picture perfect. And it still happens to this day. And we're seeing it again. And, and this is, you, you saw this results in the election. People were scared. People were talking about more police. They think there's disorder and all this stuff. I want people to know you do not fall for it. It did not work then, it never worked. It's happened every few decades, this happens like where this surge and it goes all the way back to the Jim Crow, not just Jim Crow, but the black codes era back after mm -hmm. the civil rights. Everything was criminalized. My existence was criminalized. Like my parents would have been arrested for being together uh, before 1947 or when they were born. So like this is, we're not so far removed from this stuff. What we're seeing is, 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 is just, trying to reinforce our justice you know, to the justice system that's correct, but I was designed to incarcerate us and keep us you know, suppressed and in jail. And uh, I, want, I do want Sade to make one last point about what we can do elsewhere or do what other people have actually realized and, um, I realized and actually and made some changes that we can make. 
Yeah, so um, on December 7th, there was an article that came out discussing what was happening in the Netherlands and they're closing down prisons and using them for uh, community, you know, using them for schools and everything. It's like, what is the Netherlands doing, right? So they're, they did decriminalize drug and sex work, invested in drug and mental health treatment, youth intervention schemes, and residential care for people. There's also have low rates of poverty and high social security. So people have resources. So the conclusion is, is that when you invest in people, there is no need for prisons. And Angela Davis wrote the book, Are Prisons Obsolete? And there is a way to make them obsolete, but we have to make the correct investment. So expanding any type of expansion of the criminal legal system, policing power is going to create more harm. Uh, gun laws are going to create more harm. What needs to happen is actually going after one manufacturers, and also investing community. I mean, that's just what people are doing in every other developed nation. And I see this like this happen in, it's funny how I see, you see these articles, you see it happen in Holland, you know, but, um, and other European countries where it's like, it's really extra, extra you know, overly, overwhelmingly white countries. Um, and I don't want to always like bring, you know, we can sit there and bring race into it. Cause I always, but I always even say, even if you only, if you, if you let every person of color out of American prisons right now, and left just white people live, we still be the most, we'd be the second most incarcerated country in the world right now, I think. Um, so I think, uh, you know, and actually we tie for, for like, it goes back and forth. We'd still be like the most incarcerated country. Um, so, and I say this because like white supremacy affects white people too. Um, and, and, and it kills white people too. And so, you know, to think if someone can have the hatred to make laws to, to specifically design, you know, design to, to suppress black and brown people or to or women, what makes you think they won't throw you under the bus on, along that to keep that? Because um, people, that's what you see. You see people who are they, they just consider you sympathizers. You know, that's why you have the term, term you know, like, you know, they just, people who, you know, even white people who stand up, stood up for other people of color get thrown in just like them to teach others a lesson. I think um, I want to go to, you know, back to like, I guess what we have is, like I said, what we're seeing is. We, there are other options we can do, um, but it, when we try it, every time you bring it up, it gets labeled as like anarchy, chaos, socialism, all these things that, you know, and, and, and people get bought into it. And I saw that on the doors firsthand right here in Seattle, in progressive Seattle, the same city that has cut its black population in half. We used to be 13% black in Seattle. Now we're six. And we're going to probably see that drop even more. I'm not a Seattle man. <laughs> I'm in California. Uh, like, so... Um, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, the state population has been around the same. We've, we've been pushed out to, you know, mostly North and South, you know, South King counties and, and Suhomish and Pierce. And, but like, the thing is we need to really come to grips, I think, with this as a community. And I, when I do, when I've done advocacy with, with other groups, I end up working with a lot of white people on Olympia. There's very few people out that look like us out there, uh, in there. And we end up compromising all the time just to say we got something done and we pat ourselves on the back. Um, and then we end up getting nothing done and that door is still locked. Um, and in terms of prisons in here in Washington, I, people, you know, I hear people say, talk about how proud they are. They don't have any private prisons. That is still the same thing. We have public prisons, but the labor is still privatized. Yeah. If you want to see it, <laughs> I mean, there's, the, there's a, it's just public prisons. More, we pay tax dollars to it. We're just not on a contract like a private prison is. Um, and they still, WashingtonCI.com, so Washington Correctional Industries runs most of our private labor here in Washington State through our public prisons, and the people are still working there for 11 cents an hour. So anytime you sit on, and, and they have what's called non-compete contracts, 
um, uh, you know, with with all our government agencies. So all our furniture, drapes, toiletries, all this stuff. There's a list of projects you'll see that you can even buy yourself on WashingtonCI.com, <laughs> and and that everything you see, and you go to any government agency, court services, anything, all that furniture is prison built, built by prison labor for 11 cents an hour. And these people aren't even allowed to be certified carpenters when they get out. Um, there's all kinds of products that they make for us through WashingtonCI.com and get sold, not just to our government, but anywhere else they sell. And they're just making stuff with low costs that we pay double it. We're buying back, literally buying back the equipment with our tax dollars with the money we paid to tax dollars so, you know, double <laughs> to, to make this labor. Uh, and they don't get, and those people get anything. And you saw a lot of people are in the same, in jail for the same stuff that you did in college. And when I sit, when I, every time I'm in Olympia and I'm lobbying or anywhere, and I literally see, I, and I look around these rooms, I know people in here have done drugs at some point. And if they sit here and, and can sit here and be comfortable with the criminal justice system the way that it is, then they should all, I said, you should all stand up and uh, admit and confess the crimes you've done. Because if you have done, if you have done drugs at some point in your life when they're illegal, illegal, which most 90, 95% of people have, you're either admitting that the justice, you have to admit the justice system is wrong, or you should turn yourself in. If you're if you're going to sit there and allow other people to be in jail for the same thing you did. So if you know, so either you have to fight to get all those people out and decrease, you know, we should we should be we can cut our prison population in half by tomorrow if if people actually have that kind of sympathy, but we don't. Um, and we, but, but when it comes to yourself, when you when you talk to yourself, it's it's uh, when you've done if you've done drugs or any kind of thing that's considered a crime, it's an experimentation or it's a it's a it's it's a mistake. But when we we otherize when we other our other community our, our communities, um, we we make that we we justify ourselves for locking these communities up in mass, and we did it, and I, and I, I witnessed it. I was I was. I was targeted for it in 1994. I was a sophomore in high school, and I saw it happen firsthand. And I'm seeing it again. I'm seeing this this narrative happen again, and it happened in Seattle. It's happening right here in Progressive Seattle. Um, I'm, anyone's listening, that's it. So you see my air quotes. <laughs> so, um, you know, the same Progressive City that's kicking out Black and Brown people every year, um, and raising rent prices, and and not and keeping exclusionary zoning. Uh, to keep us from actually affording them to live here and also reinforcing police that are under consent decree that are literally one of the most violent police forces I've ever seen around the country. So policing in the U.S. is so extreme. We have higher budgets for police in the U.S. than every other country except China has for their military and the United States. So we spend an obscene amount of money on our policing apparatus and we also spend $770 billion a year on our military um, federally. And so we have an extreme investment. And what Rails to speak to Rails point about, um, you know, this system having impact on white people as well, you know, racism is just fascism with the color line. And so, you know, you will see that differentiation and that extreme treatment in your streets, no matter who it is, it doesn't matter, you're not protected or safe. And so any type of expansion of the criminal legal system is going to hurt everybody. And also, um, it's also really big government. So not to say you're in Charlie's, I mean, um, as much as I tend to bash on liberals <laughs> from the left, uh, so I always talk about like what I put, there's also a real enemy we're out there up against in, on the right. And the irony of it is actually defunding the police is actually small government. Um, you talk about, you hear conservatives talk about small government all the time. 
but yet they always vote for bigger police, bigger military budgets, <laughs> and and more corporate welfare. And that is really like you know where most of our money goes. And so that is big government, because you know people forget the police are part of the government, military is part of the government, and that's bigger government. And we actually invest in better resources for to to have our government actually serve the people. What it says, serve the people. Um, we actually end up saving more money and having more money to do more stuff. Um, and that is, um, I urging people here in Indivisible, because you have federal access, you have you have a direct ear to um, to your senators and your congress congressmen to actually get urge them to rethink things, um, um, not just sit here and and think there's going to be a lot minor little changes. We need to be able to advocate, be willing to advocate ourselves out of a purpose. And when I say that was like, um, like there's a lot of activism that happens where people don't want, you know, it's actually a fear of actually fear of success that we need to get over. Um, and we need to, you know, take things um, just farther, you know, farther as far as possible because sometimes the lesser of two evils is still evil to the community and it's gonna hurt us just as much and we can't always settle. So um, I'm gonna hand it back to uh, Mr. Cox. Well, th um, thank you uh, to both of you for just an incredible conversation. And I usually don't do this, but uh, there were some things that I, I, I did want to ask uh, follow up questions with you both about. Um, and one is, you know, part of the reason why uh, I was particularly excited about today's conversation uh, is because indivisibles are going to be hitting the doors uh, for the midterm election. And, you know, we're going to hear a lot of disinformation about crime rates and about police being defunded. And this is kind of where your conversation started today. So I wanted to come back to that just very briefly. Um, and Shadi, I'll start with you on this. What do you think is the best way to change people's minds on that in, in a what's probably going to be a very short exchange? Do you, do you have like some statistics or how would you approach that conversation if you were talking to somebody, say, not, you know, obviously we're, people who are on the right or, you know, we're, we're not going to be talking with them, but people who are maybe in the center who have been fed misinformation about this. How would you counter that? Yeah, so since 1990, um, property crime has went down by 50% and violent crime has gone down by 43%. And so there is no surge in crime. What is happening is there has been a slight increase in uh, homicides, which is uh, no small thing, but not the huge onslaught that's justifying the extreme increase in budgets. And so um, the decrease in crime happened before the huge investment. And so what is happening is they're investing more in policing prisons and not uh, yielding any results. Um, so they're not solving more crimes and they're still, I should have had a slide up about this actually. Um, most crimes don't even get reported, right? People don't feel comfortable reporting to the police or they think it's an interpersonal thing and they wanna deal with it on their own. And so police are not solving most crime and even what they are getting, they're not resolving most of what they are actually getting reports on. And so what we're paying for solving crime and ending crime is not at all what we're getting. We're just spending a lot of money to do absolutely nothing. Uh, there's other ways that that money could be used to invest. For example, there's no reason why um, people can have resources. And also another, misunderstanding is that people think that victims and perpetrators are two separate groups of people. But what we see consistently is that uh, perpetrators were victimized earlier. And so it's this cycle. And so if we do not uh, interrupt those cycles and provide resources, then victims potentially become perpetrators. And that's just really what the conversation is. You had so much great information about this in your slide deck. Can that be made available uh, to listeners? Yes. 
Terrific. Okay, we'll make sure to do that. And you can find that at indivisiblepodcast.org. You know, Rial, you started to touch on this at the very end. Uh, you, you had mentioned at a couple points uh, in your discussion today that um, your inter interactions with Indivisible uh, didn't really go where you had hoped often. And I'm wondering, how would you like Indivisible and, and other largely white progressive groups to better engage on racial justice and, and criminal justice issues? Um, one really get specific on certain policies, you know, aim for something and really uh, hammer down on it. I think um, as I mean, individual tends to have, you know, you know, do federal stuff. So I'm, I'm not as really involved. In it well, we do a lot of state stuff as well. And we were yeah. actually we, we did a lot of lobbying uh, this last year uh, and particularly on behalf of the bills that were passed by Representative Jesse Johnson. Yeah. And, I'll, you know, and I was there too. And the, the thing is, it's like. I think there needs to be something. I want individuals to bring something from the community because usually what happens, I see individuals happening. Man, correct me if I'm wrong. Is there's a, a bill that's brought by a legislator or an organization that has access to these legislators, and and it's something, and they bring, it and then you get, and we and we, you know, jump onto it. Um, you know, but there's nothing that's being written really from the community that much. That's that's really going to drastically change a lot. And, and a lot of times, those things, if it does happen, it gets thrown by the wayside because they say it's too hard. So we have to get over the notion that things are too hard. Um, uh, this year, we almost got two abolitionists elected in Seattle, and and we, we look, a lot of people look at that as a failure. But I look at it as a success because two years, a year or two ago or more ago, that would never could never have happened. We've made pro progress on that. We have to cut through that narrative. Um, and you see, and, 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 and make sure that we don't follow for this pushback. Um, you see like when Shadi says like, police don't, don't prevent crime. They just follow up on it. And so how do we do actually prevent crime when we actually provide more resources to community? You know, their clearance rate, you know, for murders in black communities is 20%. So they only solve one out of five crimes. And the question is, how do you, can you say black and black crime is 91% when you can't even solve 20% of them? So the thing is when you, you know, those stats are, there's a book called how to lie with statistics. Um, and we'll probably give you, I think Shadi can come up with a reading list, like Pedagogy, Pedagogy of, uh, Gaji of the, the Oppress, um, uh, and, um, and other books that uh, people look into about how it is with perceived, you know, things are actually perceived in the, from the community. And so, like, when we say this, like, lying with statistics, when they say 91% of black and black crime, or even 85% uh, white and white crime, like, they're not even solving all those, they're not even solving half the crime, so you can't, that stat is a false it's it's a you know disingenuous statistic when you use that because uh, you know like George Zimmerman on Trey Martin is not considered a crime that wouldn't show up as a white on black crime in the crime stats because um, he was he was never like or um, even uh, the Vegas shooter those 56 white on white crimes that happened but he was, he killed himself so there was no he was never convicted so um, those don't show up in, in stats and all those things so I think you know look at the real stats look at learn how to digest stats uh, but also like I said. Look for something, you know, listen to the community that people like Shade, people like, you know, real um, activists that are in tune with what the, you know, our ancestors have, have been pushing, people like Angela Davis or people like uh, Joy, you know, Joy James, uh, Bell Hooks, Audrey Lord, um, and, and, and bring and urge, bring, implement those into your policies, implement those theories and mantras into your policies, and you're going to get much, you get a lot further than you think when we can, you know, when we can do things. And the funny thing is, it doesn't have to be loud and all this stuff. Like when you actually have access to lobbying, a lot of these things get done behind the option. It's funny when you see even in like right wing states and right wing or all white countries, they do abolition work for themselves when it's when it's for themselves. Um, rich neighbors have defunded their own police when they realize they don't need them. You know, Kansas has public did public transit for free 
<laughs> so it's like you can see these happening in the character if you do it the right way and you actually just you know you don't have to make a showdown all the time um but we you know there's there's it's possible when we know like when, when you can actually get through that narrative and find a way i'm not saying there's a perfect way to do it maybe we figure it out or not but we can do this and say there are like it does happen in other places does happen in other countries it should be able to happen here in quote air quotes progressive washington I just well, I like, want to, oh, sorry. Yeah, I, 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 actually, I'm going to throw it to you and you'll get the final okay. word, uh, Shay. Um, I, I love what you're saying about uh, not being afraid to take on things that are too hard. Um, I, I think that's something that, that we can all uh, really kind of uh, double down on. Shade, I'd love to give you the last word here today. Um, do you have thoughts on how progressive groups that are largely white, as I said, can better engage on some of the issues that you've both discussed today? Yeah, I mean, so these aren't new discussions. These aren't new statistics. This is information. Um, I mean, abolition has been a discussion not just after 18 or before 1865, but after 1865. Um, one of the first motions that was made in Congress was to abolish the prison industrial complex or the prison system um, because it was recognized that what was happening after, um, you know, Af enslaved Africans were being freed in the U.S. is that the criminal legal system was being implemented and mass incarceration was being used to re-enslave people. So this is not a new discussion. Um, and it's really just paying attention to the literature and paying attention to communities that are most impacted. People know what they need. And uh, to Riel's point, you know, what happens in, like, for example, the U.S. military, right? They offer people a free education, housing, all of those things, quote unquote, socialistic programming to get people to engage in military life. But when, you know, community generally wants free housing and education, we can't get that. Um, and the military uses that to, you know, enroll people to fight overseas and these, you know, I'm not going to comment on uh, the fascistic wars that are going on. But anyways, um, you, you could, but yeah, different discussion. <laughs> but I, I think it's really important. And I mean, even when you talk about um, sports programs, right, you talk about the NBA and NFL, they have socialistic programs for the owners of the franchises. Uh, they use things. So there's like, you know, uh, what is it? So it's the league stays competitive, right? You know, some people get these picks, some people get those picks. Uh, if you make don't make enough money, there's always protections for the people who are um, the least impacted and have the most resources. And we don't see those programs happening for people who are most impacted. So, yeah. Well, I really want to thank you both for taking the time today for this just, as I said, an incredibly important conversation that uh, I, I know that uh, people are going to, to really want to hear. And we have a ton of follow-up information for people in the show notes and at IndivisiblePodcast.org. Shade Smith and Rial Johnson, thank you so much both uh, uh, for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us.